My name is Sarah Connor. I hunt Terminators. He's the most lethal Terminator ever created. Sarah Connor, I'm going to help you. We choose our weapons, and we take it down. Terminator Dark Fate. I'll be back. Welcome to Podcast Action Hero, the show that wants you dead for the same reason it wanted me dead. Get to the chopper! I want to ask you a bunch of questions. Hey, Christmas tree! I want to have them answered immediately. I'm not a pervert! You son of a bitch! I think you are very sensitive. Get your ass to Mars. I'm not shooting on you. Fuck you, asshole. Hi, I'm Gavin. I'm Jamie. And this is the podcast where we basically talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger films for an hour. And in this episode, we are talking about 2019's Terminator Dark Fate. Jamie. Hello. What is your history with this film? Well, my history with this film began in about five years' time. I watched it quite a lot for research and then came back to last week where I watched it for technically the first time, but really it was probably like the eighth. I'm familiar with it, yeah. Hmm. How about yourself? Um, Well, I've watched this several times, about five times, but then I decided that the last three times didn't count, and so I'm just going to erase them from my continuity and, uh, and say that this is the third in the series of these versions of me watching these films. I think that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you think it does. Well, the other versions, you know, weren't so good. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, so Terminator Dark Fate, technically Terminator 3, if you discount Terminator 3. Yeah. And Terminator 3, 2, and... Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. What's wasn't going on? Genesis, Genesis was kind of a 3 as well, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Well, actually, no, Genesis was more like 1. Genesis was Terminator... Two, two. <laughs> because <laughs> technically, Genesis was retconning Terminator 2 as well. It was it was going back yeah. to the timeline from the first film and then saying, actually, now this is happening. So that had the, and I'm sure when that comes out, the Wheel of Pain will come back to this, but that had the audacity to say, not only do the shit Terminator films not count in this timeline, but arguably the better of the two films also doesn't count. And I think... I strongly suspect that's why where Genesis lost a lot of people. Uh, whereas this mm, one says, maybe. okay, not only does Terminator 3, which was what, 2005? Five was it, yeah? Not only does that not count, not only does 2009's Terminator Salvation, that doesn't count. And uh, Salvation had retconned Terminator 3 as well. Like, I said that hadn't <laughs> happened. Uh, or it, I think that was kind of like a soft reboot, really. It didn't I don't recall it necessarily suggesting that Terminator 3 didn't happen, but it just never mentioned any of the events in it at all. And mm-hmm. then Genesis retconned all three of those films, Terminator 2, Terminator 3, and Terminator Salvation. And then this has come along and said, actually, we're just retconning Terminator 3, Terminator Salvation, and Terminator Genesis, and we're picking up canon from Terminator 2. And you have to believe it, because James Cameron is on board for the first time and he says it's true. Aren't you glad we didn't just do all these in one episode like we do The Expendables? Um, Imagine trying to explain all of that Yeah, over a couple of hours. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before, the whole ignoring sequels, getting back to basics kind of thing. They've just, uh, they've just done that with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Netflix apparently as well. I see that, yeah. Never seems to go well, have you noticed? Apart from Halloween, which is probably the most successful of all of them. But I don't think this theory, this theory of going back and ignoring stuff and then having another stab at what they would have liked to have done, it never seems to work as they expect because times have changed. Hmm. It always seems to be. They kind of assumed that everyone who took on a sequel afterwards was like a journeyman or someone who wasn't really that much of a fan, just a hired hand or whatever. Hmm. And true fans are in charge now, and we all kind of know what happens when true fans get their way. <laughs> Talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre on this Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, I always thought 
while it had its problems, I always thought the Michael Bay produced reboot with Jessica Biel in it, I thought that was pretty good. It updated the concept, even though it was still set in the 70s, if I recall, it kind of updated it in a way that made it its own. And I think it did what some of these reboots tend to do sometimes quite well, is the initial reboot is good because it's kind of saying, okay, well, we're taking that initial inspiration, but we're going to do our own thing now. And then it does really well. And again, Halloween is guilty of this because they did it with Halloween H2O. And it's like the reboot, okay, not not so bad, pretty good, quite liked it. And then it goes, okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to set it in a house with cameras and virtual reality, all, all, all sorts of shit. Buster Rhymes. Oh, trick or treat, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you can guarantee that he insisted on having that line. Again, it's like Halloween H2O did something really good and then he immediately followed up with Resurrection that was terrible. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot, which I think was like 2002, 2003, something like that, I thought it was really good. They then followed that up with a prequel to that film, which I think was Terminate... Uh, fucking hell, Terminator Jesus. Uh, Terminator Jesus. The next Terminator <laughs> film... <laughs> but he spelled G-E-Y... No. <laughs> <laughs> I see where you're going with it. Yeah, um, we've digressed with record time in this one. But anyway, what I'm getting at is these reboots where they say, "Oh, ignore this film and this one, but not this film," or "Yeah, ignore that one, but not this one." We're seeing a lot of it now, and it is just the studios trying to find any excuse possible to keep these things going. I think what they're realizing is that if you keep trying to like follow on from the storyline again with Halloween, they found like once they got to Halloween Six, the Curse of Michael Myers, whatever that shit film was. Mm-hmm. Once they got to that point, they realised, ah, okay, you know, we've jumped the shark on this one. The only way to do this is to get back to basics, which I think is what you were saying earlier. Well, what you don't want is to have everyone have to read like a for about like four hours the, like the Wikipedia entry just to get up to speed. Hmm. If you look at properties that have got an extended period of uh, storytelling, like the Marvel Comics characters, if you read their Wikipedia page, you get about fifteen minutes in, and you're like. There's just so much, and you understand why they just go, right, draw a line under it. All you need to know is it was bit by a spider. Yeah. And it works. And like that's why I've always thought there's a finite amount of t- stories you should tell about a particular character or universe that are not interesting indefinitely. And I get why they're doing this thing, but I would argue that this film... Okay, shall I give a summary right before we start going into the... Uh... Yeah, I knew we were missing something, but go on. (laughs) Okay, so we're in Mexico City. Uh, There's a a woman called... Danny. Danny. I know it's Danny, but I do have a surname. Balls. (laughs) Danny Balls. Danny Balls. (laughs) Danny uh, Ramos. Or Ramos. You're going to have to uh, excuse our English pronunciation of some uh, Spanish words here. She's hunted down by a Terminator who arrives in the present day, just after, an augmented human, played by Mackenzie Davis. The augmented human is called Grace. Grace rescues her from the Terminator in an initial kind of skirmish, and they escape, and they're basically on the run, meet up with Sarah Connor, who's been given coordinates by a mystery person who sends texts. They all keep running from the Terminator. Occasionally, he catches up with them and attacks, and they escape. They make it to uh, the US border, to find the source of where these texts have been coming from. There's another point where he catches them in a detention centre. There's a big sort of massacre going on there. They escape in a helicopter. Is it a helicopter? I think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they find this cabin in the woods where the T-800, who... Oh, yeah, side note. Uh, John, John Connor was murdered at the beginning uh, in a flashback to just after Terminator 2. Um, the Terminator that actually killed, the specific one that killed John Connor, is living a, a peaceful life as a drapes salesman. Their plan is to take him on, choose mm-hmm. the place and time, and take this guy on, this Terminator. It's just a lot of escalated action at that point. Uh, there's a, an attack on an army base. They escape on a jet fighter, on a jet fighter, on a jumbo jet, mm-hmm. which then crashes into a dam. They all survive somehow. And then inside the dam, they have the big final confrontation where the, well, together, essentially, they all kill the uh, the new Terminator, which is a Rev-9 model, mm. during which time Grace 
is killed, sacrificing her life to kill this Terminator with her power core, because she's an augmented human, remember? And uh, the T-800 also sacrifices his life by kind of staying in like a pit with uh, with the other Terminator and kind of keeping him down while he dies. And Danny is destined to be the leader of the Resistance in the same way that John Connor was. That's about it. Yeah, nailed I it. thought I'd be a more, bit more succinct than that, but yeah. You made a point there about like, it gets to a point in the film and it becomes a series of escalating sort of set pieces, doesn't it? Yes, and it does. I found that, not just with this one, but with a few films, there's a point that I get to where I, I often stop making notes. Now, sometimes it's because I feel like I'm so engrossed in the film that I forget mm. to make notes. In this one, I don't think that was the case. It just got to a point where I was like, I don't really know how to make notes about an action film. There's stuff happening, but, yeah. you know, I, I don't really know what to say about it other than, you know, there is a plane that is taking a surprise and a long time to crash. I don't know. It's, yeah. It takes well, a very long time for that plane to fucking crash. Interestingly, I watched some behind-the-scenes stuff and it explains why that happens. Mm. And it's really contrived. They needed to pad the runtime. Well, no, they they just, they really wanted a fight scene in the plane where there was like gravity shifts where sometimes they'd be floating, sometimes they'd be bashing against the sides of the fuselage. And because they wanted that scene so much, they then contrived a reason for it to happen. And it's all scientifically worked out and stuff. It's like, apparently the, the way that that would work, the only way that would work is if the automatic pilot was constantly trying to pull up as the engines were exploding. So it was always dipping down and then going back up and then dipping down and going back up. Because otherwise, they'd just be slammed against a wall for the entire time. And Tim Miller, the director of this film, he's like, he's explaining this. And he's like, oh, it's it's not something you really have to think about when you're making a film is how does gravity work? But you do this and this and this. Like, maybe there's a point where you go, maybe let's not do it. (laughs) You know, rather than try so hard to justify how this could happen. Just don't have the scene, because it doesn't need it. This film was sold, at least that's the impression I got when it was first announced, it was being sold as like a back-to-basics kind of, look, we understood what worked about the first two Terminator films, and we're not going to do something silly here. But then, on the the behind-the-scenes stuff, the very first thing Linda Hamilton says is, everything's bigger, the action's bigger, the story's bigger, the locations are bigger. It's like... Yeah, I know. And it wasn't meant to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like immediately they're making the some of the same assumptions and mistakes that the other sequels have made, which is mm. better means bigger. Right. You know, the only way that we can build on the previous films is to like escalate this even bigger. And uh, that's why they failed. Everything... There needs to be like a, a new sort of central conceit to the story that says, well, now this is why this is happening. And, mm-hmm. and, and they're always trying to be like really clever. You know, this is the justification for why we're re- resetting the timeline. This is the justification for why it's possible for the central, again, like contrivance of the plot to take place. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, they always try to relaunch these things or at least have some reason to have a new version of a Terminator film mm. or, you know, they, they'll want to kind of leave their mark on it. And this was the biggest chance they've had so far to kind of say, reset, let's do something as good as the first two, the world's our oyster, essentially. Which makes it really annoying that they followed the same beats as the first two and didn't change anything, really. Mm. In this, Skynet's not a thing, right? So Mm -hmm. Terminator 2 happened, they did save the future. Okay, Skynet never happened. But they've approached this in a kind of a, Skynet never happened, but something else did. And in this case, it's called Legion. And Legion's not explained. It's just AI gone rogue. It's basically Skynet. Yeah, it may as as well be Skynet. The Terminators look the same, the basic Terminators, um, except the black. And they have the... The endoskeleton, the mm-hmm. inside bit, and also liquid metal on top of it. So they're a combination of the T-800 and the T-1000. If you had the opportunity to go, all of that didn't happen, we can introduce something completely new and still call it a Terminator. Why do, you know, you've already got a Terminator in there by having Arnold in there with the T-800. You could have had something completely different and really shaken this up. Instead, you just went back and did the same thing again. Well, because also, it's not a revolution of a new design anyway, because essentially the, was it the TX or whatever it was called? The Terminatrix and Terminator 3. 
yeah. was an endoskeleton with liquid metal covering. The only difference with this one is that the two can operate independently. Independently, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. I'd actually forgotten about that. It is the whole thing of like, it's a Terminator, but this. You know, it's it's like this, but this time it's this. There's no explanation really of the future either. There's um it's kind of explained in the way that someone who wasn't really aware of how it happened explained it. You know, like Grace explains how the future comes about in her way, but she was a kid. So she just said, it just happened. There was no warning. All of a sudden things just you know, like all technology stopped working, like planes crashed. Was it the second day of the launch nukes or the third day of the launch nukes or something? Yeah, something like that. And then that was that. And it was just a case of humanity was about to die out. And then Danny Ramos turns up and says, no, no, we don't need to do that. We can we can fight. And apparently everyone just went, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I'm out here killing people for tins of peaches. But now, <laughs> but now that you put it that way. I'm just not sure that it's what they needed was another chosen one. Well, also, I seem to remember the in the build-up to this, there was the idea that James Cameron is back. He's not directing it, but he is producing it, and I think he's having some kind of say in the, in the writing of it or something like that. And I'm sure I remember uh, seeing an interview with Cameron where he's saying, but it's very much Tim Miller's baby or whatever. It's down to him. And then as the production wore on, the stories were coming out that, nah, not really. This is another one of those things where the director isn't really the director, it's the producer, it's, it's James Cameron who's the director, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason he can't be doing this because he's doing Avatar fucking nine or something. From what I understand, Cameron was in the writer's room, along with, I think they said, like a bunch of fantasy and sci-fi book authors. And Harlan Ellison, was he in there? The guy who basically got a credit on the first one. <laughs> for having been ripped off. <laughs> yeah. Allegedly. Uh, Allegedly. I don't know who else was in there, but basically then, after they'd had a pass, they also got a lot of screenwriters in, and Tim Miller's in the room, of course, and uh, David Goyer, the credited screenwriter, I think. Ghost of Carrie Fisher was in there. Yeah, she was in there. Jesus, he turned up again. <laughs> Maybe they should have had one writer. Someone who's got an idea, come along and refresh this thing, rather than have a bunch of writers in a room with James Cameron, who are always going to be like... So, all right, James. What do you think, mm. James? Is, yeah. Is, is, that, is that okay? Take James Cameron out of the writer's room. He needs to be there to guide production. But the bit he did was the writer's room, and then he left and came back to do a load of editing and, like, butchered, cut the runtime down by tons. Mm. So, yeah, I think him and Tim Miller didn't end up friend by the end of it. Well, he's always going to be the kind of guy. And, again, if you've followed any of James Cameron's sort of film history, you know he's his legend, if you like, starts with the idea that he would break into the studio to re-edit, what was it, Piranha 2 or something like that. He was doing okay. like a one. I think he'd been fired off it, but then he would sneak into like to re-edit it. His whole uh, storytelling trick that he would use would be that that's him. His, his arc starts with the idea that he is a control freak who, even though he's been fired off a film, he's still so obsessed he will come in and he will edit it in secret. Uh, he's always been that guy who would, who has that level of sort of like control freakiness where he wants Final Cut. He wanted it with Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, all, everything is always like he wants the Final Cut. And so why would this one be any different? Yeah, he must have seen it coming, Tim Miller. How would you not? He's an interesting bloke, he's Tim Miller, because he's like, his background special effects, right? Mm. So, so the, the effects in this film are pretty good. There's an initial scene where, I think it's the very first scene where it shows you all the T-800s walking out of the sea. Yeah. The scale looks a bit weird for that, but it's like the only point where the effects don't look like convincing. Well, because it, it then immediately goes into the scene, uh, the beach scene, where you've got Sarah and John. Yep. What is it? Six months or something, I think it was meant to be after the end of Terminator 2. Yeah, deep fake versions of the young... And they look great. Yeah, they do. But then Tim Miller is, is a, this massive geek, massive nerd, who looks and sounds like an MMA fighter, mm-hmm. I wouldn't trust him with, with my film. It's like he's just going to make it into this like really dumbed-down kind of thing. And he's got more nuance than that. I don't know whether it's because he's quite new to films that he's not necessarily seen the writing on the wall when it comes to Cameron. He might be too big of a fan of Terminator to have said no to it. Possibly. And that's always the, the, the risky thing, isn't it? When somebody is too much of a fan 
of the thing when they come into mm-hmm. it is they, they there's kind of two sides to it. You could go too far either way. You can have somebody who's a massive fan of the thing and therefore doesn't have the distance to not get too swept up in it. But then you've got something I don't know, like, and again, we're going to have to talk about this at some point, but uh, with like Joel Schumacher and Batman and Robin, where he's not <laughs> at all a Batman fan. It almost right. comes across as like, I don't know, like a disdain for it, but like a, a disrespect of like how meaningful the story can be to the point where he just basically recreates the Adam West Batman, for example. Yeah. It can go either way. You can have somebody who's too involved in it, too close to it, and there's somebody who just really doesn't give a shit about the subject matter. And I think that's where Christopher Nolan did quite well with the two-thirds of the Batman films. Yeah. Where he is a fan, but he's more about the cinema, first and foremost, right? More about the filmmaking Mm -hmm. process. Uh, So I think possibly with Tim Miller here, I guess to your point, is that if he's such a Terminator fan, if he's such a big geek, maybe he's not the right guy to be making this. Yeah. He's too... He can be too reverent, or he's going to be too excited to notice the bad stuff. Interestingly, talking about the detention centre, there's a part in that film where, is it Grace's character, she refers to it as a prison, and one of the workers there says, like, no, it's a detention centre. Oh, no, she calls them prisoners, and she's corrected that they're detainees. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that, that, short of shit, that sort of shit, I should say, is true. That's what people say. It's like they, they want to be very careful about the terminology. It's like, at the end of the day, these people are not free to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's like a softening of the language. Say, oh, they're, they're detainees. They're being detained for investigation. But the reality is that because of the process in time, some of these people are detained for years Mm -hmm. and the thing about a detainee is that you can be detained without trial right so i think for that point what they are trying to get across is that it's not pro that level of immigration control but certainly it doesn't necessarily come across that well what i thought was interesting about that scene is that and i don't know whether this was intentional in this film or they just missed the opportunity to really highlight it but if you've seen terminator salvation there's a scene in that where some of the humans have been processed like cattle, mm. uh, where they're going through like the cages and the and the walkways and all these kind of things overseen by terminators. And when I saw the detention center, I was like, right, it's people who are basically being caged like animals, right. right? I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was a scene that is on the cutting room floor that actually f- had a flash forward to the future where the machines are again keeping people in cages ready for processing. Yeah, kind of just drawing parallels. Yeah, exactly. Like, who's the monster and all these kind of things? You know, who are these... Who's the machine? Who are the machine men with machine hearts and all this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> to quote Jeff. Paraphrasing chat. yeah. <laughs> it could have done with some something like that, some kind of, like, connective tissue, because there's definitely a... As much as the first Terminator has this disconnect between 1984 and, what is it, 2029, I think it is? Similar, yeah. It's explained how it happens, so you very easily draw a line from one to the other, and it's explained how this is going to happen to some degree, at least. In this, I just feel like that it doesn't feel like the world that the majority of the film's set in logically turns into the world that Grace is from, hmm. even though... Am I right in thinking that the last scene of this film shows Grace as a kid in a play park? Mm-hmm. seeing Sarah Connor and Danny drive off in a Jeep, right? Yeah, the very last scene is like they are recreating, in a way, the um, the Holocaust, the nuclear Holocaust scene from Terminator 2, where in Terminator 2, Sarah's up against the wire mesh fence, watching the kids play in the playground. She sees herself playing with young John as an infant, mm-hmm. and then the nuclear missile hits. So it's like they're recreating that. So at the end of this one, you've got right. Danny up against the wire mesh fence, watching the kids play. And one of the kids, like you say, is a uh, is an infant's Grace. Mm. Not even an infant Grace. She's also about like seven or eight, really. Yeah, yeah. But then the future scenes that we see is Grace around the, that age. Mm. And yeah. she's kind of, you know, homeless. She's just wrapped in a kind of uh, whatever clothing she can find, I guess. And she's about to be robbed by a bunch of like a street gang or whatever. It's post-nukes and it's after uh, the start of like the revolution, essentially. So that implies that that future was very, very close to now. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. I never thought of that. So maybe they could have done something with that in terms of like, the threat's actually here. They haven't stopped the future from happening. It's going to happen and it's probably going to happen soon. So unless they reboot this again, and I'm assuming they are going to make another Terminator film because surely the only reason there's so many is that the studio needs to keep the copyright. Uh-huh. I assume the next one can only be set in that future. 
if they were to continue this timeline, which again, based on how this film performed, I think we're looking at another reboot. Entirely possible. Which wouldn't be a bad thing because I don't particularly think Natalia Reyes, who mm-hmm. played Danny, she's a good actress, but I don't feel like she's the person who can play a leader. They didn't give her a lot to work with. And I thought what was interesting is that, I tell you what, I'd be interested to find out, and it's probably not an awful lot of research involved, but her age in this film compared to Linda Hamilton's age in the first Terminator, because Linda Hamilton in the first Terminator seems a lot older than Natalia Reyes. Yeah. Uh, in in yeah. this one. And I'm not sure if it's a case of like a lot of people these days do seem younger. Uh, I'm looking it up now. I can tell you that she's older than Linda Hamilton was when she was in Terminator. She's older. Linda Hamilton, when she filmed Terminator, assuming when it was filmed in 83, mm-hmm. was 27. Natalia Reyes was 30. Bloody hell. It would have been filmed in... No, she would have been 31. Maybe if it was filmed in 2018. She doesn't look it. I genuinely thought she was a kid when this film started. Yeah, she looks really, really young. What's interesting is that when the Danny character's first introduced, she's like really in control of her family. Like clearly she's looking after her, her brother mm. who's a bit of a, a, a nerd who is focused or obsessed with his like YouTube or Instagram following uh, with his mm-hmm. music and all these kind of things. And a uh, dad's kind of like, he's, he's, he's a working Joe, he's doing his best, but she's very much like the matriarch, uh, not the matriarch, yeah, the matriarch of the family. Yeah. She's making that household work. So she's showing straight away that she is organized, she is uh, motivated and, and able to sort of like rally together, even though it's two people, but get those people together. So you see that right off the bat. That's true, yeah. But that's about as far as they give her character development. Mm. There's still a little bit, and again, you saw this with, uh, with Sarah Connor in the first one, you know, the uh, resisting the uh, the call to action or whatever it is. Yeah. There's a little bit of that. But it almost seems like the gap that she has to travel to get to the point where at the end of it, she's like, this is the kill box. Even it's before that, actually, isn't it? It's like when they're at the cabin, she's like, no, we're going to face this head on. We're going to do it. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a huge gap for her to traverse, as it were. No, I guess not. Because by that point, she's lost everything already. You know, she's kind of like, look, I've lost my entire family and you've told me that funerals won't help them and crying won't help them, that kind of thing. So, I, Yeah, cheers, Sarah. Yeah, and she doesn't want to turn into Sarah. So what she got left, she may as well just go, look, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And the problem is there really isn't room for her in this film because it's very concentrated on, on Grace, for one thing, who's quite a charismatic, almost like a lead. She feels like she's the lead. I don't really know who the lead is in this film. Yeah, Grace is essentially the Kyle Reese of this film. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, of course, Linda Hamilton, who she's given a quite a major role because obviously, why would you bring her back otherwise? So, mm-hmm. you know, fans would want that. And then there's never just those three. There's always like a bunch of Danny's family or whatever involved or some military guys or something like that. And then you've got, the T-800 or Carl. And once he shows up, it's essentially Danny by virtue of being the least recognisable person in the in the film. He's kind of relegated to fourth place and mm-hmm. she's meant to be the John Connor of this situation. Actually, there's a few things that I do like. I think it attempted a few things here that it maybe didn't pull off all that well. One of them was, of course, with Danny's character. Instead of being a vessel for the saviour of humanity, she herself was save humanity and that's a nice sort of turnaround and obviously you know Sarah Connor didn't necessarily get that the first time around mm. Sarah Connor's character is quite an interesting one because I think in the first one she was like it seems like yes she's the vessel for the savior of humanity she's going to give birth to him by the time the second film rolls around she's done that but he's not yet ready so then she becomes the savior herself she goes out and starts you know we meet her in the second one where she's in a mental hospital because she's been out trying to do the savior stuff herself and then she has an interesting arc in that one where she almost becomes the Terminator. And well, I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. this as and when we do get to watch the second one. Uh, and then it comes around to this one where, again, she's managed to like, save, what, three billion human lives or something that she says. Uh-huh. Uh, but she's failed to actually protect the one life that was most important to her. So now she's on this like, revenge mission. And mm-hmm. so what, what I'm trying to get to is that what I like about this, what this film tries to do, even if it's unsuccessful, is you've got supposedly the main protagonist the future saviour themselves is a woman. You've got the protector, the main protector who's sent back is a woman as well. 
Mm-hmm. And then also you've then got an older woman coming in as like a revenge character as well. So it's all these typically yeah. underrepresented people who are being given sort of front-running leads on this. But again, very much to your point, they all then immediately take a back seat as soon as fucking Carl comes out of his cabin and starts talking mm. about drapes. Because yeah. now it's Arnold's film again. And you made a note of this. At mm-hmm. what point in the runtime does Arnold Schwarzenegger first show up? Well, listeners who have already listened to the Killing Gunther episode, might recall that in that film it was one hour, seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it was also, like, on the nose, as the cabin door opens, it's one hour, seven minutes. Yeah. Weird. And funnily enough, I haven't heard any complaints about Arnold Schwarzenegger barely being in this film. I wonder if it's, like, how much time you then got to spend with him after that, because in Killing Gunther, it's, what, generously 20, 25 minutes, something like that. That's true. Uh, whereas in this one, at least you've got another hour to go. Mm, fair point. You could argue that, you know, you've got a young version of him appearing right at the very start when he kills, you know, young John That's Connor. That's true, yeah. You know, you could argue that, except that isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is another bodybuilder sort of character with a yep. deep-faked Arnold face. Right. I've got a question about that Terminator. Go on. The Terminator that becomes Carl. They averted the future in Terminator 2. Yes. That doesn't mean that the Terminators that were sent back aren't still around. Hmm. Because the Terminator in that one has to lower himself into the the lava, you know, the hot metal or whatever. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that this Carl Terminator was sent back at the same time? Because the way she describes it is they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming. And her thing over the last, what, 30 years has been keep killing all these Terminators wherever they show up. How are they being sent back if that future doesn't exist anymore? So... This is not only where the time travel thing can break your brain, but it's also where the science or the plot behind this can also break down quite a lot. That's what I thought. The suggestion from the first, at least the first film anyway, is that Skynet managed to send a Terminator back just as the Resistance turned up and then destroyed the time displacement equipment, right? Right. And again, we'll probably touch on this when we do watch Terminator Genesis. They recreate, um, or they create that scene where... The Terminator gets sent back to 1984 just as the Resistance turn up, capture that equipment, and they say, Skynet sent one through, we didn't manage to stop it, we need somebody to go through after it. And that's when fucking Jai Courtney volunteers to go in as a terrible Carl Reese. But again, we'll talk about that another time. The way that the first film and Genesis back this up is that the idea that one Terminator has gone through. However... One thing I seem to recall, I can't remember if it's from the comics or whatever it was, is the idea is Skynet has just spent, I don't know, let's call it an hour, sending a shitload of Terminators back through time. Mostly T-800s, mm. but at least one T-1000, I guess, maybe, and a, and a TX and maybe some others, all at once before the Resistance actually turn up to shut that equipment down. And what Skynet is doing is he's going, okay, well, we'll go 1984, we'll go 1997, we'll go 2005. I'll pick all these different dates because there's no way they'll be able to avoid all of them. Right. They're putting all their money on lots of different horses rather than just one to win. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why you've got another T-800 that Sarah wasn't aware of turns up at that beach in wherever they're supposed to be. I can't remember where it said they are. No, I can't remember. Cancun or something. That turns up kills John, and it's because, and he, like I say, he's from a future that no longer exists. He doesn't know that. All he knows is that's his mission, and then he's, he's off and he's living his best life. One thing that I think I like about this, but I don't think it really necessarily stuck the landing on, is the idea that for Sarah and for John at that point, they think they're safe from the future, mm-hmm. and they are. What they're stuck with now is the past catching up with them, a past they didn't mm-hmm. even know about. So it's no longer the idea that the future is coming to get you, it's the past is coming to get you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's almost like this sort of like pincer movement of future and past, that you know, yeah. ultimately there's no way to avoid it. It talks a lot in the second film in particular about your fate. They touch on fate really briefly in this one, but not with the same reverence that the first two films do. Well, they actually quote the line, don't they? Yeah, she says, Danny, you told me about no fate, but what we make for ourselves. Well, who the fuck taught her that? Because... She'd seen Terminator. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, because Kyle's dead, John's dead. Did Sarah tell her that at some point? We don't see it in the film. It could be the their version of Cal Reese being his own mentor's dad. Yeah. They tell each other it, but in different times, I guess. No one originated it. It's just always there. Or Jim Cameron just popped his head in and said it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to put no fate in there, guys. <laughs> All right, Jim. No worries. They do actually do quite a few lines that I'd rather didn't. Or a few, a few little nods. I get it. It's been thirty years. There's a whole generation that hasn't grown up with all of these films, but they're the Easter eggs are for us, right? Yeah, we've talked about this in some of the other episodes. It's like, who's it for? You know, mm. the first thing Sarah Connor says is, "I'll be back." And good lord, could you not have just thought a bit more about that? Just not been so on the nose. The moment that happened, I was like, "Oh, I'm not going to like this film." <laughs> and it's it's not that I don't like it. I kind of weep for what it could have been. Because that can't really mean anything to her, because realistically, if we're to go by the, the first two films, the only time she's heard that is when they're in the elevator at the, not Skynet, the Cyberdyne building, when Arnold is like, wait here, I'll be back, and then he goes and gets the van and comes crashing through the lobby, right? She's not saying that as any kind of callback to her, where it's like... No, she's literally just casually saying it, I guess. But it's supposed to mean something for us, like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. She said the line. It's just the fanboy bit. It's a thing for people like who do trailer reactions and stuff on oh, YouTube. Like really the, oh! Oh! <laughs> so they can do the big face <laughs> that they can put in the thumbnail. Yeah, you've said it, but it doesn't mean anything. Mm. Just make a good film. I would appreciate you making a good film <laughs> rather than just say, here's this checklist of things that we've got to do. That's what this film essentially is. A checklist where you've got to have a T eight hundred design. It's slightly different. He's got like a he's got no top of his head. Yeah. The actual endoskeleton. But essentially, it's the same thing, and it's roughly the same concept except for like you say, he can split into two. Could have been something else. It could have been a dog. It made me realise that the best Terminator films of the last few years have been No Country for Old Men. <laughs> it follows, you know, yeah. um, that episode of Black Mirror called uh, Metalhead. Uh huh. Yeah. There's these constant things where the whole point is you can't sit still. You've got to keep running because mm. something's coming for you. That's all the Terminator needs to be. Clearly, it doesn't have to be Cyberdyne slash Skynet. It doesn't have to be a particular model of Terminator. They look like anything now. They can be from any future. They can be from any origin point. It's an unstoppable killing machine, and it's after one person. That's all the Terminator has to have as its base elements and they keep adding the same dressing to it. Yeah. The worst part of it is it's fun. You know, some of it is fun. There's a truck chase in this, just like there is a truck chase in T2. Mm-hmm. It's directed well. The action's directed well. You kind of get into it, but like after a while, action's not enough. I'm with you on that one. You can tell this film's been made with love by Tim Miller, at the very least. I, I agree. I mm. think it's quite a director film. Uh, the CG is great, the action's great, all that kind of stuff works. Where this fails, where it lives and dies, like a lot of action films, is on the story. And mm. the issue that it's got is you've got essentially four leads, to your point. It's like, who is the lead in this one? It's not Danny, because she's immediately overshadowed by the arrival of Linda Hamilton and then Arnold Schwarzenegger. So mm-hmm. they're going to want their focus. and They're inevitably going to draw a lot of attention towards them as well. And so you've got these four characters. In fact... Arnold Schwarzenegger as Carl, he gets more character development than Danny really does. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden, he's got this whole sort of journey about... Which, by the way, Carl's arc only works if you go by the theatrical release of Terminator 2, and not, for example, the James Cameron director's cut where you see the the head surgery scene. Because in the theatrical cut, they don't have the whole head surgery scene, and if anybody's never seen the head surgery scene... No, I've never seen it. Have you not? No. Right. I'm really interested then, when we do finally get around to watching Terminator 2, if we can get the director's cut of the T-1000 edition that I had when it was on VHS. Because, spoilers for any, for you and for anybody, um, in the scene that was cut from the theatrical version, they're talking about how the Terminator learns. And in the special edition, the director's cut, what the Terminator says, what Swatsonic says is, my CPU is a neural net processor, a learning computer. In the theatrical court, he said it, it cuts away, looks at like John or Sarah, and then it's a bit of ADR that then says, the more I'm around humans, the more I learn, right? Okay. Which is what ties into this film, right? In the director's cut, what actually happened, what they originally shot was, my CPU is a, a neural net processor, a learning computer, but Skynet presets the chip to read only when I'm sent out alone. Oh. And then one of the, I think it's uh, I think it's John then says, can we reset the chip? And then it immediately cuts to this surgery scene where they basically open up the Terminator's head, take the chip out, and there's a little switch on it, 
they flip that, and now he's able to then learn from other people. That's why he suddenly does all these awkward smiles and stuff. Exactly, yeah, because at that point, that's him learning to become more human. They felt they slowed the film down, I think, for the theatrical cut, but they just mm. said, yeah, the more I'm around humans, the more I learn, and that's how Carl then develops us, because he's, he spent more time around people and started to develop a version of empathy, or the closest thing, I guess, a machine can get to empathy. Mm. They touch on this where they say, do you love them? And he's like, he says something like, it's not love as humans experience it, but something close. Yeah, he's essentially, uh, what's his face from Star Trek, isn't he? It's like... It's Data. Yeah, he's doing his best. He's, he's doing his best to be as close to human as he can get, knowing he can never be what he wants to be, I guess. It's Pinocchio. He wants to be yeah. a real boy. I almost feel like they could have started with him and built a film around his character hmm. rather than this story. That's quite interesting in terms of like, it's almost like an analogue for, you know how, I mean, I don't like, I don't agree with the phrase, but like cancel culture and stuff yeah. and the, the whole thing of people having old opinions dragged back up and brought out and said like, ah, look, look what you said in 2010 when you were 17 and now you're 29. Hmm. Yeah, people change, people evolve. And there's something to that in terms of like, give people time to evolve and change and learn and they will become something different and probably better in even in you know the eyes of the people who don't like them now and i feel like there's like something to be said with terminator in that respect where it's like he's a character who had no personality other than i'm going to kill this person and then immediately switched and went right so now what and his whole journey of beginning to learn started. I guess he had to try and just lie low for a bit because yeah. even though he's a Terminator, he's you know he's just shot a kid in broad daylight. Going back to what you were talking about earlier about how you've got so many writers and script doctors and all these people and James Cameron and Tim Miller and David Goyer and all these people in, in a room all writing this mm. story, it's, it's very much the definition of too many cooks spoiling the broth, right? Yeah. You could probably pick out five or six storylines in this film that if any single one of them was developed into something with depth, any single one of these characters you could take away and develop that again. You could almost have, right? You know those films where you have like an event that happens and then it's a series of branching off storylines where the film then goes and follows a different person and sees how a single event actually changes their life. Yeah. You could have that. Like, you know, you've got like like you were just talking about following the T-800 who later becomes Carl and then goes through that journey of trying to, you know, having gone through a loss of purpose. In this case, he accomplishes his purpose and then he's mm -hmm. bereft. He's like, he's gone. He's got nothing to, for want of a better phrase, to live for, to exist for. Yeah, he's a newborn. Yeah, and then having to refine and redefine his purpose. You've got that story. You've then also got like, you could then follow Sarah from that point and see... Well, again, she's lost her purpose at that point as well. Her mm. purpose was protecting John, which she thought she'd done. You could follow that one as well. You could then follow, well, let's talk more about Grace. Let's learn more about her story, about how she got from that park to the future, apparently a few days later. And then <laughs> any single one of these characters has got a real opportunity to have a really well-developed, really interesting story behind them. But instead they kind of go, tell you what, let's not do any of that. Let's just learn almost nothing about four of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A chase scene's great. And like I say, it is essentially what Terminator boils down to, but it doesn't always have to. Hmm. I feel like we're really slamming this film a lot. Yeah. I didn't hate it at all. No, not at all. I think I'd seen this once, maybe twice before we watched it last week. When I went back to watch it this time, I was like, yeah, that pretty much tracks with what I remember it being is like, yeah, it's fine. I was never yeah. bored. There was never a point where, you know, like some of the It goes films, back pretty quick, I think. Yeah, like, I mean, we always go back to and talk as a way of illustrating this. I think it's Jingle All The Way, where it's like, what is it? An hour in or something like that? Yeah. Or 40 mm -hmm. minutes in? And we're like... 50 right. minutes for me, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, there can't be much longer left of the... Another fucking 45 minutes? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine getting to the point where, you know, Schwarzenegger walks out the cabin and you're like, okay, it's wrapping up now, and then... You've know, you got, you, you got another hour left. At least when he came out, I wasn't thinking, oh God, I'm ready for this to finish. I was I was still on board. You know, I still felt the film yeah. was kind of like wrapping up. That said, it was still too long. It didn't need to end the way it ended. Like you say, stop taking notes because it just escalated action. It doesn't necessarily say anything after a while. It's just, we've held up. We haven't held off on the action. We've seen a lot of action. It's just a lot of it's been, 
the the fighting's pretty well choreographed and it's interesting to watch. The sets are pretty interesting, I guess. I actually think Diego Luna as the was it Rev Nine Terminator. Mm-hmm. I actually think he does a fairly good job. He's he's not particularly intimidating, but I think that's the point of this one is that he is a bit more like the T one thousand in that he can have a conversation. As an infiltration unit is more interesting. Yeah, he passes much better for a human. Um, his interactions with people are better. And when he arrives at the uh, the detention centre as well and he's going through the metal detector, he says something like, expect a big bing because my whole body's a weapon. And what they actually do with the small cosmetic changes they make around his character, like when he appears, everything freezes rather mm. than gets static electricity. It's interesting-ish. But, you know, again, it's... It's surface level stuff. It doesn't necessarily change. You know, it's still a guy arriving from the future who can't be killed. I I don't know. I do feel like I'm being much more negative than I actually feel about it. Where my biggest criticism comes from is that actually, when they were talking about this film, when they were building, and I guess it's all part of the marketing, right? But when they were talking about the making of this film and the writing of it, and when they're doing all the publicity for it before and after it was released, they were talking about how it's this great reinvention of the genre and they really wrote a check that the film ultimately for my opinion couldn't cash if they'd have just said that this is actually just a pretty entertaining action film that paces itself fairly well uh, and we don't worry too much about character development obviously while i'm saying this i'm realizing how fucking ridiculous i sound because they're never going to say those kind of things are they but i think the, the fact that they set this film up like it's supposed to be this huge reinvention of the genre, of which Terminator, frankly, is its own genre, essentially, at this point, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. They set it up to be this entire thing, and it isn't, and it wasn't, and it never was going to be. If you approach it as it's just an insane action film, then it's fine. So the very point we were talking about earlier, like I'm looking at my notes, and I rarely make a lot of notes, as you know, anyway, but I got to a point towards the end of my first page where it says, It's Carl. And then my next note, or my next two notes are, quote, loads of action shit and some explosions. Sarah has a purpose now. And then my second note is, <laughs> not much to say about action scenes. And that was it. That was like my last one until the very end. That was the second hour. Yeah. Have you seen any of the deleted scenes? Uh, no. Okay. Um, they originally gave the Rev-9 a different ability. Hmm. You know, there's a scene in this where he's already at the border station or something like that. He's killed a bunch of guards and he's like, he's, his hands are sort of like melding into the keyboard and the computer and stuff. And he's going through all these different camera footage because the same, there's a line, isn't it? I think it's Sarah who says it, mm-hmm. where like there's cameras everywhere now and he can look through them. Yeah, yeah. It must be Grace. It must be Grace who says it because she knows what he can do. He's kind of interfacing with it. But in the deleted scenes, he doesn't have to do that. It just shows you like scenes of a bunch of dead bodies and he just sat in a chair and there's one scene where he's just sat outside with a, a full cup of coffee that's gone cold he sat outside a cafe just staring straight ahead and then it kind of cuts to what he's looking at and it's always the same footage of him cycling through and then eventually catching sight of them trying to cross the border by uh, using a was it drone yeah, yeah, yeah. camera so originally he must have been like one of those you know anti-5g yeah, the master giving us cancer, kind of. <laughs> so he used to have this kind of Wi-Fi slash 5G slash Bluetooth ability. Which you'd hope in the future that he'd have some kind of, like, wireless connectivity, right? He wouldn't have well, to, like, land straight well, into... you kind of would, but then looking at the future that they came from, I guess it, if anyone's going to have it, it's them. But the humans, the resistance starts... Grace has got to be around, what, 12 when she's rescued? Mm-hmm. And that's, like, the start of the resistance, something like that. If she's about the same age as Mackenzie Davis is in real life, she's like mid-30s, I guess, mm. or early 30s. So let's say we're 20 years into this post-apocalyptic world by the time that the Resistance have got all these guns and they're fighting the, the Rev-9s and other Terminator variants. They seem to have got a fairly decent setup. It's not like the first Terminator film where they're eating rats and looking at TVs on fire as entertainment, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. That was just depressing as hell. But here, they've got like hospitals and stuff, and they, they well, can augment humans. They've got all this technology that can do all this stuff. Yeah. Which suggests it's not quite as hopeless as the original future. They've got an actual tactical base, and they've got technology, and they've got this and that. And it's, I mean, it still looks like a nightmare, but it doesn't look quite as bleak as the original future. That almost kind of removes some of the stakes. Because mm-hmm. it's no longer, I mean, you could argue the second and third Terminator films did this with the time travel, but it's no longer enough that they can just send back a human. They've got to send back an augmented human in the same way that they can't just send back 
a Terminator. It's got to be a Terminator that also insert fucking novelty on this one. Yeah, it, exactly. It's a Terminator, but it's liquid metal. You know, it's a Terminator, but it's got a skeleton and it's liquid metal. It's a Terminator, but it's got a skeleton and a liquid metal that can operate independently of each other. And I'd be really curious to know what's the next one going to be. Same with the human. You know, it's, it's a human, but they're augmented and they've got a power. So it's basically half, I don't know. Mm. With the first one in particular, the only reason that really worked for them is that they had captured Skynet technology. If right. they weren't able to capture Skynet technology, then it wouldn't have happened. You know, they send Reese back and he's got no technology with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he, he's def- most definitely the underdog. Whereas with this one, it's like, well, you know, essentially they've got a, a human who's got all these augmentations and all these kind of things. It doesn't make sense that they are coming from a future where theoretically they've already in the future got the technology to defeat these things. Yeah, and it also makes you wonder why the augmentation somehow lets you survive having technology in you when you time travel because the original rules were only organic stuff, right? Or or anything wrapped in organic tissue. Correct, yeah. Which Grace is. Yeah, exactly. Why not put weapons in her? <laughs> well, did we not talk about this in a previous episode? It's like, well, why did Carl Reese not come back with like a Terminator destroying bomb stuffed up his ass or something, right? It's... <laughs> <laughs> What he really needed was like a thigh that opened up like Robocops and you can just put a, a gun in a holster yeah. from his holster. Yeah, exactly. You know, be committed to it. Makes you wonder how much of her is still human. She's essentially like a slightly less traumatic Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> Does she die because she's the Kyle Reese character and the Kyle Reese character has to die? Yeah, that's got to be. She's more interesting than most of the other characters. The odds have never been so even in a Terminator right. film as they are in this one. The stakes have never been so low. If that's what Tim Miller and James Cameron meant by, like, it's sort of reinventing or rebuilding, it's like, well, <laughs> you know, do you know what? You've you've taken away so much of actually what made those first films, especially the first one, so good because the first one in particular felt so hopeless all yeah. the way through it. Exactly, yeah. All the way up until the point where she crushes the first one in the hydraulic press. It's like, this thing is not going to stop. She's not going to get away. You never got that with this Rev-9. It's like, yeah, we'll get rid of it. I'm kind of stuck on this point, but I feel like they really need to just give this some thought because, like I say, they will make another Terminator movie. Mm -hmm. They just need to give this some thought as to like what they can do with the concept of a time-travelling, unstoppable killer. Or does does it need to be time-travelling anymore? Salvation was a Terminator movie. Didn't have any time travel in it. I thought Salvation was all right. Spoilers for that episode. I'm with you on that. I think that successfully, or more successfully, managed to do something different. Mm-hmm. And believe me, that's not something I like to say when McGee's involved in a film. <laughs> You're not a Charles Angels fan? Never seen it, to be fair. Man. I just know that he created Entourage, and that's enough. <laughs> Why is um, nothing coming from the future to kill him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Just Jeremy Piven getting shot in the head again and again. <laughs> yeah, I just think they really need to do what they say they're doing from now on and try to reinvent it. Start from scratch. Don't even involve Arnold. Don't involve anyone called Sarah Connor. If you're going to do it, make it the start of something that people will be excited about rather than, I wonder if this one will be, mm, yeah, it's pretty much the same. Mm. I feel like it's topped out on its potential in the form it's in. Yeah, definitely. It, it is... The point of diminishing returns. I would say, I think the TV series was pretty good. Sarah Connor Chronicles, I reckon that did quite well. It's a shame. Go on. I was just going to say, it's impressive that you said that, because I always end up calling it the Sarah Connor Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that did quite well, to be fair. It took it in a way. And again, it's a shame that even with that, it was still tied to the Connors. You know, it was still tied to that, those same characters. But I, I think there's an opportunity to, again, do something new. And I think that Terminator is kind of suffering in the same way that Star Wars is, was, and will continue to be, is that they just can't seem to really get away from the Skywalker storyline. Mm-hmm. Even though they say they're not going to do it, they do it. Yeah. Imagine like everything that happens in the world that somehow has to involve Kanye West. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's doing his best to make sure that's true, but... I know. Um, you know, oh, there's a crisis in Rangoon. Uh, I don't know if Rangoon's still a thing, but I'm just trying <laughs> to think of like some random place where Kanye would have nothing to do with it. It's looking at this like military crisis, and then all of a sudden the door opens. One of the people turns around and goes, 
you son of a bitch. And it turns around and it's fucking Kanye. And it's like, no reason to be there. Like, the world exists mm-hmm. without him, but he's yeah. fucking turning up for some reason because apparently it's impossible for any timeline in this world to exist without Kanye. That's what Star Wars is doing. And that's what mm-hmm. fucking Terminator seems to be doing with the Connors. Is like, create... I think they tried to do this again. Sorry. When you say the Connors, I just think of Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> Damn! That'd be amazing! Just as a sitcom, but with the Terminator. Well, you know, like in the first Terminator film, it, it, there's like loads of cases of mistaken identity in that because all he does, he just knows the name and goes into the, the phone book, doesn't he? He just goes around killing Sarah Connors, but like a version where he doesn't even know the first name. <laughs> and he just goes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think that's where I'm up to, is if they're going to keep Terminator going, just do some new characters, you know, mm-hmm. let the legacy of the Connors go. I think that's what they were trying to do with this one, but it, it's obviously failed. There's so many ways you could change this. Doesn't have to be present day. Doesn't have to involve a Connor. Doesn't have to involve a T-800. Doesn't have to involve time travel, as it turns mm. out. Doesn't have to involve Skynet or, you know, Legion. It could be a different type of film. It could be a different format. It could be... It could be a rom-com. Why not? That's what Carl's arc could have been. That could have been a rom-com. Yeah. Uh, we, we didn't really mention that he's married. Like, well, he's not married, but he may as well be. Well, he's in a, a non-physical relationship with a, uh, with a woman. Apparently, he's, he's good at changing diapers. His son's how old? <laughs> I think, like 12. <laughs> I, think, I think I think what we were saying was that's where the relationship got started. He was good at changing diapers. He was efficient and didn't complain. It would be quite good if it was like, it just turns out that Carl's one of those adults who just wears nappies and stuff all the time. There's a scene where they walk in on him and he's got a dummy in his mouth and he's on all fours. He's like, oh, you've caught me. I learned too well from the humans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you said like you know he's basically starting again, right? He's uh, he's he's like he an, an infant, infant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wonder if on that point it's mm-hmm. worth wrapping this one up. It feels like we've not really said as much as I expected, but I do have one note here, and mm-hmm. let's see if you know what I'm talking about. My note here is dubstep heartbeat. No, nope, no idea. So in the original Terminator film. The noise, the music, in a way, that comes on screen whenever the Terminator's on, which is like, and they do it again in Terminator 2, the same one, but they only do it really when the T-1000 is on screen, that one. If you notice, when we go back and watch the second one, Arnold doesn't have that. So if you know what you're looking for, you realise he's a good guy anyway. Exactly right. And in this one, they didn't have the same one, but it was more like a dubstepy sort of like electro kind of like noise that came on for the Rev-9. So they gave him his own, like, Oh, dear. Anyway, that's going all the way back to that point, but uh, I just noticed that. I was like, oh, I see what they've done there. They've given him his own unique kind of Terminator heartbeat. Some of the sound design's pretty good, actually. Mm. In general, there's a level of quality. It's always going to be above. It's going to be an acceptable, at worst, level of quality. So, you know, you can definitely enjoy yourself. This sounds like I'm already doing my wrap-up, doesn't it? Should we probably get into it? Yeah, let's get into that. So let's rate this thing. For first-time listeners uh, who have not listened to any other episodes, which is very much the definition of a first-time listener. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, we're doing great. We're doing really well. So for first-time listeners, when we rate these films, we do it on a binary rating system with nuance, where we say, if we think that you should watch this film, we will say, do it now. And if we think that you shouldn't watch this film, we will say put the cookie down. And so, Jamie, for 2019's Terminated Dark Fate, what do you say, do it now or put the cookie down? I am torn. Because, like I say, you can kind of get what you'd get from this film by watching pretty much any of the other Terminator films. It kind of depends on where where your fandom or whatever lies. If you're desperate to see... Linda Hamilton, after 30 years. You know, hello, there she is. If you're an Arnold completist, that's good. If you if you kind of want to see Arnold admittedly doing a different take on the Terminator, which you could argue maybe requires a little less acting mm. um, and more just him being Arnold, that's fine. If, you want to, if you're interested in visual effects and I guess also it's probably worth 
saying it's a, it's a film that could be uh, more enjoyable for anyone who's been waiting for a more female-led Terminator. Mm-hmm. More so, I mean, it's always been a fairly female-centric sort of thing anyway. But this is one of those films, this definitely passes the Bechdel test. And it's 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 just interesting in, in that way that maybe we're progressing in a, in a way where there wasn't an outcry about it this time. I just feel like any recommendation I would give here is just saying, well, if you like this, you might enjoy this. I can't, with my whole heart, say it's something worth watching. If you're a Terminator completist, yeah, go for it. But you've probably also watched the server Chronicles, and maybe some of that ground's been covered in that series as well. I don't know. I haven't seen that. Oh, God, I don't know. Um, <laughs> have I ever said do the cookie now? I think we've touched on that in some other episodes, yeah. yeah. Do the cookie now. Um, so that's not committal, isn't it? That's fence-sitting. Uh, put the cookie down. <laughs> I'm committing to it. I don't feel good about it, but I'm committing to it. I'd be interested to find out what your take on this is. Uh, I think it's going to be very much the same, if I'm honest with you. Immediately after watching this, let's just see how I can put this. I feel like the experience of watching this film, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, Jamie, it's not, a, it's not an attack at you, but I think I enjoyed <laughs> I enjoyed watching this film more than any, more than I enjoyed talking about it with you. <laughs> <laughs> because when I was watching the film, there was enough kind of like, ooh, shiny, bang, bang. There was enough action and the film moved at a pace that was enough to distract me from the massive gaping story and plot holes and lack of character development that was in it. Whereas us here today talking through it and thinking back over it and really inspecting each part and talking over, I realised that actually it wasn't a a very good film. And it reminds me of like, I don't know, something like fucking Herbalife where it's on the face of it appears to be something that is quite good and uh, sort of purports to be something that is good for you and enjoyable and all these kind of things. But under the surface, just turns out to be like a multi-level marketing pyramid scheme that actually just fleeces people for their entire life savings. I feel like that's what Terminator Dark Fate is. It's something that is suggesting that it is somehow adding a valuable installment, almost like a restorative installment to an overbloated franchise and saying, don't worry everyone, the problems that we've experienced with the last few films, we're getting rid of all that, we're going back to basics, we're going to give you something that really fits as a natural sequel to Terminator 2. And then it's only after when you really think about it, you kind of go, no, no, it doesn't. It's, it's just the doing... last thing it feels like, isn't it? Ever since Terminator 3. So they did Terminator 3, and then Salvation came along and seemed to go, don't worry, guys, we're ignoring Terminator 3. This is going to be its own thing. We're going to do something completely different. And then Genesis came along and was like, don't worry, guys. Don't worry about Terminator Salvation. We're going to do our own thing. It's going to be brilliant. And this one comes along and goes, don't worry about Genesis, guys. We're going to do our own thing. So uh, when I watched it, I was like, do you know what? I enjoyed it. I'm going to caveat it by saying, if you just want to watch a brain-dead, enjoyable action romp, then yeah, watch it. But if you're looking for what this film promises itself to be, which is like a natural successor to the pre- to, to Terminator 2, um, no, put the cookie down because it, it, it ain't that. It's like eating a turd without the polish. So, uh, so yeah, I think you've got a couple of put the cookie downs. Don't bother. I feel like it's been a while since we've had a put the cookie down, especially a unanimous one. We've had a good run. I think uh, the the last few episodes have been surprisingly good in terms mm. of like the you know the recommendations and stuff. And I didn't expect this to be my first put the cookie down for quite a while. So, do you feel comfortable saying to people that if you had a choice between this and Killing Gunther, go and watch Killing Gunther? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I then. actually do, yeah. How about that? Well, I guess um, it's time to randomly pick Terminator Genesis out of the <laughs> <laughs> out of the wheel of pain. <laughs> it's gonna be in it. Let's see what comes out. Let's spin the wheel of pain. The film that we are going to be watching and talking about next time is. <laughs> No way. Predator. Get in! <laughs> oh, I've got to stop saying get in. I never say get in apart from apparently when a good film comes up on the wheel of pen. Do, 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 do.
um, yeah, that's that's something I'm looking forward to. I mean, not to spoil next time's show, but I I've probably seen this more than any other Arnold film. Do you know what? I've not watched Predator in at least six months, so maybe in that time, <laughs> despite loving it for thirty years, maybe mm-hmm. no, twenty five years. Yeah, maybe I'm going to watch it back this time and be like, it doesn't pass the Bechtel test. So. He <laughs> <laughs> can't do with only one female character in it. <laughs> we don't know what the Predator identifies as, let's face it. All right. Well, I think we are done. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the socials on Instagram and Twitter at Pod Action Hero. We're also at Pod Action Hero on Letterboxd. And. If you can do us the biggest favour and give us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, I'll do you a favour. I won't separate my skin from my skeleton, send both sentient parts after you on a chase across two countries to an ultimately disappointing ending. I've been Gavin. I've been weird. (laughs) And we will speak to you again next time. Editing Jamie here, just to update you. Like a robot from the future, deadlines have caught up to us and we're going to take a little mid-season break and we will be back with you in a few weeks. I'm trying to think of an Arnold-related saying that will indicate that we'll return. Um, 